This is an alternative universe. See, there aren't any textbooks that teach about these principles. It's dangerous if the government gets in the business of propaganda. We need journalistic integrity now more than ever. Warning, you're listening to the Agenda 31 podcast with Corey Ive and Todd McGreevy. The thing, remember, names are for things. That is why the United States respects the sovereignty of the British people and their right of self-determination. For good reasons, we don't want the government to be the lead on that. Due to the unique division of political authority in the United States, U.S. citizens are residents in every state and should not attempt to copy the strategies employed by the hosts of the Agenda 31 broadcast without first consulting legal counsel. Do you have a license for this? Uh, motivation. What's, uh, what, what, what is my motivation? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with slavery, just so we're clear. As a U.S. citizen, you, you just don't own anything. You're just a, a user, and the government owns everything. And the assumption is everybody's a U.S. citizen. You know, you're going to have to shut up or I'm going to have you arrested. Welcome. Welcome to the Agenda31.org show. I'm your co-host, Corey Ibe, broadcasting from within the city limits of Los Angeles, California, here on the left coast. Uh, Todd isn't with us today, but we are uh, very lucky. We have a special guest. Uh, we're going to call him JP. Uh, we're going to keep his identity anonymous for good reason. He's served in the government for over 30 years, and he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, uh, well, what we're going to talk about today, which is one of the most interesting tax cases that I've come across. It, it, well, it, it's somebody, and we'll get into it in a bit, but he actually lost his case. He owed the tax that he said he didn't owe or was was uh, submitting a bill saying that he w- should not have to pay this tax. What's really interesting about this is when you look at why he owed the tax, that's something that all of us who are interested in Article 4 citizenship can really benefit from. Because he didn't owe the tax because of who he was or that he made income. He owed the tax for a different reason. And JP is with us today. He's going to go over this case. It's the Frank Bruchaver case from many years ago. I don't know anybody who knows more about this case uh, than JP from the USA. And we're very excited to have you with us today, JP. I'm going to do my best to call you JP because we know each other offline, but we do want to keep your identity anonymous. And, you know, the the information is so incredible with this that... Well, let's get into it. How you doing, JP? How you doing, Corey? Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a uh, very apropos subject, being the uh, time of month that it is here in April. And uh, I'd like to start out with um, an article that came out online. This was on uh, Market Watch. Of course, it, it appeared in, in a several uh, different websites. It was uh, posted on Drudge, and it has to do with, uh, it's titled, Americans Get an F on Income Tax Quiz. And it states that American adults appear to be confused, very confused by the United States tax code. 
More than half of taxpayers don't understand many basic personal finance questions about federal income tax returns as they relate to retirement, college savings, and health care, a result not much changed from previous years based on a recent survey of more than 2,300 adults given by personal finance sites. That is a fail by all academic standards. Now, this article, and I won't uh, continue to read through this. Anybody can Google it and see. But some of the things are that uh, people simply don't know what they're doing. Some 57% of taxpayers don't even know what a W-4 is, and 59% don't know that April 18th, 2017, was the deadline for making a tax-deductible contribution to a traditional individual retirement account. What's more, 58% of taxpayers incorrectly believe that getting a tax extension means they can delay the due date of their income tax payment. This particular article offers a 10-question quiz, and the questions that they pose are very conventional. They have to do with the types of uh, uh, tax topics that you hear on the news and financial magazines, but what we're going to talk about today is a very esoteric uh, and historical uh, aspect of the federal income tax that I believe has been purposely relegated to the memory hole because the information uh, that this presentation that we're going to go through tonight has the potential of setting Americans completely free from the federal income tax. This is not going to be your run-of-the-mill patriot theory that uh, the 16th Amendment is uh, was not properly ratified or that the uh, income tax is unconstitutional, that the 14th Amendment is to blame. No, it's uh, actually going to be much more in-depth and much more thoughtful than that. And uh, if you've got pen and paper, have that ready. And if you don't, please go get pen and paper because we're going to give you lots of resources. Now, uh, Corey was gracious enough to protect my identity and who I am and what I did in the government is uh, not really all that important, but I think that the information that we're going to present here this evening should, to the intellectually honest individual, be proof enough for uh, what's going on and should prove very clearly that the income tax, that there's more to it than meets the eye. Absolutely. I think uh... – just to put out there and, and stop me if I'm overstepping or, or we're going to get into this later, but something to really think about that I've noticed is not in any of the so-called patriot movement, the books, the, the things that I've read, is that, well, one, a lot of them say that the income tax is unconstitutional. They just show you all the reasons why it's unconstitutional, and I'm, I'm sure you and I agree that – the income tax is 100% constitutional, but it operates a lot differently than what people think. In fact, calling it an income tax right off the bat is really kind of the wrong thing to do because it gives it the wrong connotation. Uh, it, it's more of an – it's an excise tax on the activity, and it's the income that sets how much that tax will be. Is that and correct? That's, that, that's exactly right. And before we delve into particulars of this case, let's just start with some uh, – some bread and butter concepts with respect to the Constitution and constitutional taxation. There are in the Constitution two species of taxation. There are direct taxes which shall be apportioned, and that's addressed in Article 1, 
Section 2, Clause 3, and also in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4. That's direct apportion taxes. And then in Article 1, Section 8, it talks about indirect taxes, such as imposts, excises, and duties. And those taxes shall be uniform across the country. And what that means by uniform is that not everybody pays the same amount, but that the law is deployed uniformly in Washington State as it might be down in Miami, Florida. Uh, there are certain classes of people who don't pay federal income tax, and that's just due to uh, the amount of uh, income that they bring in or uh, where others might pay uh, quite a bit more, and that's due to a much larger measure of income. But exactly, uh, you hit the nail on the head, Corey, the income tax is not a direct tax. It is an indirect tax. And the wording of the 16th Amendment, I believe, is what uh, confuses people because uh, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4 states that uh, no capitation or other direct tax shall be levied unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Now, that sounds rather Shakespearean, but it does basically mean that uh, income taxes of the direct nature shall be apportioned. And we're not going to get into a, a delve into a huge academic study of the federal income tax. I, I think for any uh, student of this topic, I think it's well understood that the 16th Amendment, uh, although the ratification does have some dubious circumstances surrounding it, as does most controversial legislation, but the fact of the matter is, is it is here, it is part of the Constitution, and it has been since 1913. And to uh, to state otherwise is whistling in the dark and wishful thinking because uh, it's very much alive and well. Yeah, the idea that you can go to court and successfully argue that the income tax or the, the 16th Amendment on income taxes was not ratified properly and use that as a defense. I would, in fact, I would say that the way taxes are done, the 16th Amendment is not necessary. It's, it's not an, uh, the way taxes are, uh, collected and levied in modern times. It would work without the 16th Amendment. What's your thought on that? Well, let's be real about what happens in the 16th Amendment. Again, we both and, and we conclude that it is legitimate and it's fully constitutional. But the way it is deployed, it is a an unbelievably beautifully crafted scheme that brings nearly all manner of financial transactions into the purview of the tax code. And that's not to say that it must, but it does through voluntary compliance mechanisms. But um, to piggyback on what you had just said earlier, I have uh, before me here a, a transcript from the congressional record of uh, March 27th, 1943, by a gentleman uh, named F. Morse Hubbard. He was the former legislative draftsman uh, in the Treasury Department who helped draft some of the early statutes and regulations on the income tax uh, in the 30s and 40s. And uh, right off the bat, it, uh, the, the uh, primary heading of this transcript is that the income tax is an excise tax and income is merely the basis for determining its amount. Going further down into the transcript, 
Mr. Hubbard states, the income tax is therefore not a tax on income as such. It is an excise tax with respect to certain activities and privileges, which is measured by reference to the income which they produce. The income is not the subject of the tax. Rather, it is the basis for determining the amount of tax. The federal income tax is an excise tax levied on federal privilege. That is making money in connection with the federal government. Now, as a uh, quick example of what a direct apportion tax might look like, uh, imagine one day you're at home and a tax collector comes and knocks on your door and you answer the door and and he says, uh, Mr. Ibe, uh, we're here to co- uh, collect our apportioned direct tax. Now, uh, as per our latest census, we understand you have four people in your household and we are picking up uh, $1,000 per person. Therefore, you, sir, owe us $4,000 of tax. And that is taxed directly to you and to each individual by virtue of just occupying that particular geographical location over which the apportionment is levied. Now, an indirect tax is something like a gasoline tax or like a sales tax or an airline ticket tax. These are things that you don't have to pay. You just simply avoid the activity by which the tax is levied and you have avoided the tax. If you don't want to pay the gasoline tax, don't pump gas in your car. Take your bicycle. If you don't want to pay an airline ticket tax, take a canoe to Hawaii. All those taxes are voluntary, and it should be very well understood as we go forward in this discussion that the federal income tax is an excise on federal privilege. Now, the vast majority of people feel that the income tax is unconstitutional because they have just enough knowledge of constitutional taxation to be dangerous. They say, you know, I work for uh, Acme, an American company that manufactures everything. I don't work for the federal government, and the federal government is taxing me each year. Well, what they don't understand is that they have done two things. They have established a status that avails them to the tax. One, two, they have entered into a voluntary agreement with their employer and the federal government to have their private sector pay treated as if it were federal wages. This is done through a W-4. And if you don't believe that a W-4 is voluntary, here's one you're going to want to write down. Reference 26 U.S.C. 3402-P3. And that talks about voluntary withholding agreements. So uh, without going much further into the two, the, uh, the two different types of tax, we, we conclude that there are two species of constitutional tax, a direct apportion tax and an indirect uniform tax. And the courts have held again and again, and as uh, F. Morse Hubbard just stated in his uh, congressional record, that the federal income tax of the 16th Amendment is an indirect excise. There are a lot of people out there um, 
that offer rewards showing yeah, maybe a hundred thousand. I think uh, there's some different constitutional organizations out there that say they'll pay anybody a hundred thousand dollars if they can show where in the tax code it makes them a human being individually liable for the tax. Well, you can't prove a negative. You can look as long as you want and you're never going to find it. That's because it's not a tax on you, the person. It is a tax on a United States trader business, not a California trader business, not a Florida trader business, not a North Carolina trader business, etc., but a United States trader business. And that is the subject of the excise tax. Now, the income that is accrued in the course of that trade or business becomes the measuring stick by which you enter a table and determine the amount of tax. So it's not the income per se, but it's the activity by which the income is derived, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, if if I were a government employee of some sort, let's say I worked for the forestry service, then the uniform that I wear or occupying that position of working for the forestry service, that's what's taxed. That's the the actual taxable event or the taxable activity is that, you know, you you don't have a right to work for the forestry. So if you work for the forestry and it's a federal agency, then they can tax it. Now, the amount that they pay you is the base upon which that tax will be determined, but it's not it's not the pay that is taxed, it's the actual wearing of a uniform for the forestry service that would s- expose you to liability for the tax. Is that right? That's exactly right. And if um, if we look at the actual language of the Sixteenth Amendment, it says. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes. It doesn't say the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on people. And therein is an initial uh, part of the confusion because it goes on to say the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. That seems – to fly directly in the face of Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4 that says all direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states. But the Supreme Court has stated in many, many cases, uh, Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific being one of them, that the income tax belongs in the category of indirect or excise taxes and therefore shall remain in the category as such and not impose this amendment in direct contradiction to Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, that all direct taxes shall be apportioned. So they say that it is an indirect tax. And so if you can learn to understand that an activity that involves the federal government, that is the excise taxable event, whether you actually work for the federal government or you make some type of connection with the federal government through a federal form such as a W-4 or the use of your Social Security number, That those are the property of the federal government. And if you fill one of those out in the private sector, you there's your federal nexus. And the laws are written uh, in such a way that that pay becomes the legal 
and uh, legitimate object of the tax. And, and I want to say again, right off the bat, because I know we got all sorts of people listening to this today. Uh, if you have a federal income tax liability, pay it. Chances are, if the IRS says you owe some money, you probably owe it. Um, and we'll get more into how those taxable liabilities are created. Yeah, something I, I, if you don't mind me pointing out, we, I just recalled this. We had a guest on the show a while back named Kurt Collenbeck. And, you know, he, he's done some really amazing research as well. And, um, like many researchers, I don't agree with everything that of his conclusions. But one of the things that he brought up was really fascinating. And the first thing I thought of was the 16th Amendment. I forgot exactly when the 16th Amendment was ratified. But r- before the 16th Amendment was ratified, immediately following the um, the outbreak of the Civil War, a change in the code was done that said um, basically that – you know, the the only place that these codes that they're doing for taxes, the only place that it applies is the District of Columbia where necessary for this legislation. And that was in the I believe it was the 38th Congress that made that switch that all the states, the term state would mean a subdivision of the District of Columbia where necessary for the tax code. And if you look at it from the standpoint of the country broke after the Civil War and was never really put together correctly, to me, I take this 16th Amendment as being, hey, you know, we have power to, uh, you know, levy a tax on any income, regardless of where it's coming from. But we're only talking about Washington, D.C., which, which is what the part that's missing on the 16th Amendment. And I think w- they knew exactly what they were doing by that point. The government had become completely infested with Esquires. With our cursory review of constitutional taxation behind us, I want to get to the really exciting aspect of today's program, and that is the Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific case. Um, That case um, was adjudicated in well, it started, it was filed in 1914 and was ruled on by the Supreme Court in 1960. And the citation for that case is Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific, 240 U.S. 1, 1916. And the case basically uh, involved an individual by the name of Frank Bruce Haber. Now, let's go over uh, Frank just for a minute. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. On September 6th, 1884. So under the 14th Amendment, yes, the 14th Amendment, he could regard himself as a United States citizen and a citizen of New York by virtue of him simply residing there. But he was a cashier for the Wall Street firm of Thomas Davies and Company. And what he did is he took his own personal funds and he invested in the Union Pacific Railroad. Now, the Union Pacific Railroad was created by Congress in the Pacific Railway Act of 1862, and you can read that legislation at 12 Statute 489 in the uh, Congressional Statutes at Large. And what this did is this was a railroad corporation that was created by the federal government. Because it was created by Congress, it was domiciled in the District of Columbia. So the corporation was a... Uh, citizen 
of the District of Columbia. It was a juristic person, not a natural person. It was an artificial entity. And the objective of the Union Pacific Railroad was to run a rail line from the Union of States at that time across federal territory all the way to the Pacific. So uh, you could go look at a uh, any map on uh, Wikipedia or Google, and you could see what the country looked like in 1862. And uh, most of the western United States as we know it today was all federal territory. And so the Union Pacific Railroad operated in some of the states and then operated primarily in federal territory. Well, what Union Pacific Railroad was doing is uh, following the passage of the 16th Amendment. And to answer your question, the 16th Amendment was ratified uh, the same year that the Federal Reserve Act was ratified in 1913. And uh, we could uh, discuss a little bit more the reasons for those uh, those two bedfellows. So when they built the uh, railroad from the Union to the Pacific, it was going to operate primarily through federal territory. So when Bruce Haber invested his personal funds in this railroad, it being a federal corporation, they withheld uh, on the interest and dividends from his investment in the stocks and bonds of the Union Pacific Railroad. Now, Frank Bruce Haber, being a fairly educated man, understood it at the time to mean that this constituted a non-apportioned direct tax because he viewed the stocks and bonds on the Union Pacific Railroad as his property. In any gain or interest accrued from his property, he felt constituted an unapportioned direct tax. Uh, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it should be uh, noted that uh, Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific is probably the cornerstone of legitimizing the constitutionality of the federal income tax. It is the primary case that the federal government relies on to justify the 16th Amendment as being constitutional and that the income tax as we enjoy it today being uh, completely legitimate and constitutional as well. So Bruce Haber lost his case, and that should not come to any surprise, but uh, there's a little bit more to this case behind the scenes and what came in the wake of his ruling, and that's what is really exciting and that this is what should really catch the attention of anybody who looks at it. A Treasury Decision 2313, which was published by uh, the Treasury Department, Office of the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, Washington, D.C., March 22nd, 1916. And uh, I'm sorry, yeah, March 21st, 1916, and it's stated as follows. Under the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States, in the case of Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific Railroad Company, decided January 24th, 1916, it is hereby held that income accruing to non-resident aliens in the form of interest from the bonds and dividends on the stock of domestic corporations is subject to the income tax imposed by the Act of October 3rd, 1913. So question for you, Corey. Um, this Treasury decision addresses specifically the Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific Railway Company. 
and they talk about two parties. They talk about a non-resident alien, and they talk about a domestic corporation. Well, Bruce Haber was a natural person. The Union Pacific Railroad was a corporation or a juristic person. So let me ask you, who was the domestic corporation? Was it Bruce Haber or was it the Union Pacific Railroad? Well, I, that's I, I'm kind of cheating because I know the answer. It would be Union Pacific. That's right. And so the only other party in this legal contest was Frank Bruce Haber himself. So the question that the casual observer should be asking himself is, why is Frank Bruce Haber an American born in New York and someone who could, and I, I want to emphasize the word could, classify himself as a United States citizen under the 14th Amendment, why does the Treasury Department regard him as a non-resident alien? Well, that that is a, a great question that hits right at the heart of what Article 4 citizenship is. And That's exactly right. And, and uh, I'm going to give the punchline right here, and then we're going to go into some in-depth explanation as to how this works and why this is legitimate and what every American can do. Frank Bruce Haber filed his complaint in the District Court of the United States for the Southern District of New York on March 13, 1914. The opening page of his complaint, uh, his complaint reads as follows. Frank R. Bruce Haber, a citizen of the state of New York and a resident of the borough of Brooklyn in the city of New York, brings this, his bill, against Union Pacific Railroad Company, a corporation and citizen of the state of Utah, having its executive office and a place of business in the borough of Manhattan in the city of New York and the Southern District of New York in his own behalf and on behalf of any and all of the stockholders of the defendant Union Pacific Railroad Company, who may join in protection and contribute to the expense of the suit. So if you notice, and this escapes most people, Frank Bruce Haber did not aver his status to be that of a United States citizen and resident of New York, which is how most people would probably aver their status today, but rather he averred his status as a citizen of the state of New York and a resident of the borough of Brooklyn. That is, he completely approached the court in a status that was completely representative of the sovereign nature of the state of New York. Right. He did not re, uh, aver his status on a national character, which he could have done because we, we understand that New York, yes, is in the United States. Uh, it's within the 50 states, as is D.C., and if you were born in the 50 states or D.C., under the 14th Amendment, and I want to emphasize, under the 14th Amendment, you can regard yourself as a United States citizen and a state citizen. Now, what's really interesting, Corey, is if you go and just try this, talk to people on the street, strike up a conversation and ask them if they've ever heard of state citizenship. I have found, as you probably have, and, and we haven't discussed this question, I, I just brought this up, yeah. but I have found that virtually everyone denies the existence 
of state citizenship. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it's also really, just another thing to it is you can see for a lot of people, it becomes confusing. It, it, their brains have a difficult time processing the idea that there's anything other than the citizenship they're familiar with. Well, and, and, you know, the, the, the government relies on the 14th Amendment and uh, everybody aversed themselves as a United States citizen because of the 14th Amendment. So let's look exactly at what that says. U.S. Constitution, Amendment 14, Section 1, Clause 1 states, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So right there in the language of the 14th Amendment, it discusses state citizenship. So for anyone to deny the existence of state citizenship, all you have to do is point them directly to Section 1, Clause 1 of the 14th Amendment, where it talks about that they are both United States citizens and citizens of the state in which they reside. And the same thought can be applied to Article 4 as well, because that refers to citizens of a state having uh, privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. So That's state citizenship exactly is, right. Yeah, the only type of citizenship available was state citizenship prior to the 14th Amendment. Yeah, so let's... Uh... Let's look at a couple pieces of Supreme Court case law. Uh, and before we go into these, I, I want the audience to pay particular attention to what it is I am about to say, because this is extremely important. Not only is there United States citizenship and state citizenship, but more importantly, it is you need to understand that there are two species of state citizenship. There is state citizenship as it relates to United States citizenship, i.e., you're a citizenship of the state, which happens to be a political subdivision of the nation, i.e., it is a component of the whole, and that whole being the nation of the United States of America. Now, if we examine exactly what a nation is, we know that it's a political body made up of several states. So let's look at exactly what a state is. A state, according to Texas v. White, is a political community, a group of people occupying defined geographical territory politically organized under a common system of government. So a state is a um, – it's, th it's a political body comprising three elements of geography, people, and government. But if I say – I could show somebody a, a geographical representation, say, of the state of Florida, and I'd say, what is this? And, and people would say, well, that's the state of Florida. But in reality, that's the state of Florida in its geographical sense. Right. When, when you refer to the word state, a, whether, you, whether you realize it or not, you're not only referring to the geographical boundary – but you're also referring to the people that are citizens of that geographical boundary, and you're also referring to the government that operates legitimately within the geographical confines of that uh, – uh, the state, of the geographical representation of the state. 
And so when we say government, that means, you know, the legislature, it means the police, it means the, the police cars, the municipal governments, everything that makes up the government apparatus together with the people and that land is what makes up the state. It's a political body. So now if you, if you regard each of the 50 states as political bodies, most people, if you show them a picture of, uh, you know, the 50 states, they'll say, well, that's the nation of the United States. Well, no, that's the 50 states in their geographical sense. That's nothing more than a weather map. But you also realize that the District of Columbia is a state. It's not a constitutional state, but by the definition of what a state is, land, people, and government, it is also a body politic. Same with Puerto Rico. Same with U.S. Virgin Islands. Guam, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. These are all organized territories, and they are all part of our country. Those territories and the District of Columbia are just not states within the meaning of the Constitution. Do you remember some years back when uh, President Obama stated that he, or at the time, I think it, it may have been candidate Obama, I don't recall exactly when he said it, but he said that he had just got finished visiting all 57 states. Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, ironically, you know, the the lamestream media of the more conservative variety likes to uh, make fun of him as if he didn't know what he was talking about. But if you regard uh, Guam, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, Swains Island, and D.C., you have 57 states. And if you go into the Social Security Act under 42 U.S.C., I believe it's Section 1401, the definition of the term state includes the District of Columbia, and then they enumerate all of the territories, including American Samoa right. and the trust territory of the Marshall Islands or, or some such thing that has since uh, been been relegated to um, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. One of the but, things uh, we, we didn't mention that, that I think is key in that decision, the Texas v. White decision, is that they do describe a state, and they said there's actually many different kinds of states – but what people don't I th – what they don't realize, and this is uh, just directly stated in Texas v. White, is that there's only one type of state guaranteed a Republican form of government by the Constitution, and that is the several states. That's so right. that, that I think was very clear that the, the court was acknowledging that there's – you know, more states out there. There's certainly other states. Just like you said, Washington, D.C. is a state by definition that there's a people, a government, there's a defined territory and so forth. But that's not a state guaranteed a Republican form of government. So it, it, there are different types of states. And so that, that, that's important for uh, the fans of Agenda 31 to realize that, you know, at, at first, something that might seem contradictory if you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit more and get deeper into it and, and have a better understanding of, you know, what a different state is, like what are the different types of states, that that can help answer questions and be less confusing than just the initial look at it, which, in my opinion, they, when I say they, I'm referring to the people who write this stuff, especially when it comes to legislation, they intentionally write this to be confusing. Because they know most people aren't going to take the time 
to really research it. And most people are going to answer a question. If you say, are you in the United States? They're going to say, well, of course I am. That's right. Well, in, in uh, the Supreme Court, uh, what, what you just referred to about there being different states and different types of rules, um, they clarified this very well in uh, the insular cases, um, which there were several insular cases, I think maybe 15 or 16 altogether, that in the in the primary question of the insular questions was, does the Constitution follow the flag? Right. So we talked about Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands being part of our country. They're, they're not part of the several states, but they are part of the nation of the United States. And listen to what the Supreme Court said in Downs versus Bidwell. It says the Constitution is applicable to territories acquired by purchase or conquest only when and so far as Congress shall so direct notwithstanding its duty to guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government, that's Article 4, Section 4, by which we understand, according to the definition of Webster, a government in which the supreme power resides in the whole body of the people and is exercised by representatives elected by them. Congress did not hesitate in the original organization of the territories of Louisiana, Florida, the Northwest Territory, and its subdivisions of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin, and still more recently in the case of Alaska, to establish a form of government bearing a much greater analogy to a British crown colony than a Republican state of America, and to vest the legislative power either in a governor and council or a governor and judges to be appointed by the president. That's Downs versus Bidwell. 182 U.S. 244 at 279 in 1901. So now we've talked about the 50 states. We also know that according to the Social Security Act, that D.C. and the territories are also states. We'll call those statutory states. Now we also know that the federal government is the general government of our nation. So now if you can picture those three components, land, people, and government making up a state, now let's take all of those states and let's create a larger political superstate called the nation state. So you would have the federal government exercising a specified and enumerated jurisdiction over the 50 states, but over D.C. and the territories, they exercise an exclusive jurisdiction as uh, elucidated in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 for D.C., and Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, also known as the Territorial Clause. And that nation is made up of the American people. But i got to ask you, where is it that the American people come from? Well, they come from all of the political subdivisions of the national body politic, that is to say – Citizens of Louisiana, citizens of Texas, citizens of Arkansas, California, Puerto Rico, D.C., etc., all together make up the American people. So what you have is you have a body politic that is the nation, and then you have political subdivisions, which are the state. And the, each one of those objects have their own political jurisdiction. So going back to the 14th Amendment, because I want to I want to address this since we just talked about the 14th Amendment and we talked about 
political jurisdiction, a lot of people that I have talked to have a tremendous amount of heartburn with the phrase subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So as a review, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, Clause 1 states, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. A lot of my uh, friends will say, well, I'm not subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Well, you might be or you could be, but let's look at what the Supreme Court said with respect to that. This is, uh, write this one down, Elk versus Wilkins, 112 U.S. 94 at 102 through 103, and this is 1884. And for those of you who might not know, the uh, 14th Amendment was ratified in, uh, uh, I believe it was July 20th of 18, 1868. So uh, 1884, obviously, this is uh, you know some, uh, what, uh, 16 years or so after the ratification. And here's what it says. This section contemplates two sources of citizenship and two sources only, birth and naturalization. The persons declared to be citizens are all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. The evident meaning of these last words is not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. And the words relate to the time of birth in the one case as they do to the time of naturalization in the other. Persons not thus subject to the jurisdiction of the United States at the time of birth cannot become so afterwards except by being naturalized, either individually as by proceedings under the Naturalization Acts or collectively as by the force of a treaty by which foreign territory is acquired. Now, that speaks to the political jurisdiction of the United States. Now, I want you to – we're going to emphasize a point. It says completely subject to their jurisdiction. Now I want to go 14 years earlier to a dispute between the state of Virginia and the state of West Virginia. And this had to do with whether or not the federal courts could settle a dispute over state lines – between two sovereign states. And listen to what the Supreme Court said in State of Virginia versus State of West Virginia. And this site is 78 U.S. 39 at 55 in 1870. We consider, therefore, the established doctrine of this court to be that it has jurisdiction of questions of boundary between two states of this union and that this jurisdiction is not defeated because in deciding that question, it becomes necessary to examine into and construe compacts or agreements between those states, or because the decree which the court may render affects the territorial limits of the political jurisdiction and sovereignty of the states which are parties to the proceeding. So now, back to Elk versus Wilkins, we talked about being completely subject to the United States political jurisdiction. But in this case, they talk about the political jurisdiction of the state of Virginia and the state of West Virginia. Well, we have under the American system of federalism, not a system of shared sovereignty, but a system of dual sovereignty. And let's look at two 
Supreme Court cases with respect to that. One is Collector versus Day, 78 U.S. 113. The general government and the states, although both exist within the same territorial limits, are separate and distinct sovereignties acting separately and independently of each other within their respective spheres. The former in its appropriate sphere is supreme, but the states within the limits of their powers not granted or in the language of the 10th Amendment reserved are as independent of the general government as that government within its sphere is independent of the states. And more recently, in Heath versus Alabama, 474 U.S. 82, at 92 through 93, this was in 1985, the Supreme Court said, in America, the powers of sovereignty are divided between the government of the union and those of the states. They are each sovereign with respect to the objects committed to it and neither sovereign with respect to the objects committed to the other. So what does all this mean? I read a lot of case law here. We read Elk versus Wilkins, which talked about being completely subject to the political jurisdiction of the United States. That's under the 14th Amendment. But in the state of Virginia versus West Virginia, the courts talked about the political jurisdiction of those states. Now, I just gave you two other examples, Collector versus Day and Heath versus Alabama, where it states that the federal government is sovereign over its sphere of influence and the states are sovereign over theirs. So you can't share political jurisdiction. You either defer to one jurisdiction or the other. So if you... If you characterize yourself as a United States citizen, you have completely subjected yourself to the political jurisdiction of the United States. And although state citizenship is addressed therein, your citizenship is of a political subdivision within the national structure. And when you refer to yourself as a United States citizen, that citizenship becomes dominant and paramount over state citizenship. Whereas if you, like Bruce Haber, aver your status as a citizen and resident of the state of New York, you have done nothing to surrender the nature of your citizenship under Article 4 or the 10th Amendment. And so you are protected under the political jurisdiction and under the sovereignty of your respective state. Now, this, I want to be clear, this does not mean that federal law does not apply to you. Remember, there are two species of federal jurisdiction. There is general jurisdiction, which occurs in the District of Columbia and federal territories and federal enclaves. But then there is federal subject matter jurisdiction, And you could be on the surface of the moon. And if you are counterfeiting federal reserve notes, the federal government has subject matter jurisdiction over you because we granted them the power over coin and currency in Article 1, Section 8. Same thing with post offices, the Navy, copyright, patent law, bankruptcy laws, all of those 17 specified and enumerated items in Article 1, Section 8 are all subject matter areas that the federal government exercises extraterritorial jurisdiction in those areas. It doesn't matter 
if you're in Texas or in California or Idaho, if you are infringing on the federal government subject matter under the supremacy clause, the feds can come in and they are going to assume a superior role over you than the police power that exists within your state geographical boundaries, the, jur- the general jurisdiction of the state. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And uh, that, that, I mean, that, that is the subject matter. That, that is what we talk about a lot on this show. And, but just to go back just a second, I'm, I'm curious if you know, because you've done so much research into the Frank Bruchaber case, do you think that he intentionally decided that he was going to aver Article 4 citizenship and leave out U.S. citizenship? Or do you think that might have been something that was just a historical leftover of how people called themselves uh, citizens at the time? Because you had both at, at that period of time. Um, you would you would have people who would uh, still, I, I imagine, would still be under the influence of their grandparents and great grandparents and so forth. And that uh, that's how it would have been done prior to the 14th Amendment, is you would say you're a citizen of New York and a resident of uh, an area within that state or you're a citizen of California or something like that. But, of course, the 14th Amendment had been in play now for what it would have been. Uh, Just shy of 50 years, yeah. 46 years at the time that this case uh, started in 1914. So, yeah, the um, – if you really and we'll go over this in more detail when we when we really start to dissect uh, the mechanics and of, of the Bruce Haber case, but it'll really get your uh, conspiratorial juices flowing because uh, on one hand, uh, the Treasury decision twenty three thirteen when they forthrightly refer to Bruce Haber as a um, as a non resident alien that's that's unbelievable. that. That is an unbelievable statement by our federal government of uh, what a citizen of the several states, what his tax status can be under the Internal Revenue Code. This is it's it. I can't think of a larger, more momentous disclosure ever with respect to the federal government on anything. Uh, If people cannot comprehend the impact of this reality. And uh, I I understand that uh, the federal income tax and tax code is uh, not something that your average Joe likes to read. Uh, It's something that excites me incredibly. It's about my favorite thing to read only because it's such a conundrum and it's such a mystery because uh, the tax code is millions and millions and millions of words long. And I really believe that what the uh, Congress is trying to do, or, or more accurately, those who lobby Congress to pass the tax laws, is they are trying to wow the citizens with the enormity of it, uh, rather than the citizens seeing the forest they are trying to bamboozle them with bunches and bunches and bunches of trees. Right. And right. you have to understand that, you know, every every election cycle we hear candidates say, we're going to get some major tax reform. We're going to simplify the tax code and you're going to be able to do your taxes on a postcard. Corey, that is never, ever going to happen. No, no, and it's one, not. And one thing I would like to tell people 
is um, stop asking for a quote unquote fair tax. You are being played psychologically. Uh, a fair tax would be nothing more than um, something other than what we have. What you want to fully understand is how the federal income tax works. Believe me, the people that know how it's going to work and the people who control it are not going to have it change because they don't want it changed. But it's a great uh, political talking point uh, every election cycle, but it's not going to change and it's not going to be done on a postcard. Uh, but there is a legitimate way out uh, in, in certain instances, mm -hmm. and it all begins with your status. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of reminds me, Corey, um, I like I have a little analogy that I like to use. And uh, if I were to ask you to recite the alphabet, where would you start? Well, I would start with A, and then uh, I would have to sing it. Right, but I, I B mean, I, and then C and right. D and so on. Exactly. Well, anytime you discuss the federal income tax with a, an accountant, an attorney, uh, a member of Congress, um, or just about anyone for that matter, the income tax discussion, if I can draw an analogy, would be akin to starting the alphabet uh, recitation at the letter C. Right. Right. They never they never discuss A or B, A being how is my tax status determined and B, how is it that I incur a liability? Everyone just likes to quote Ben Franklin and says, oh, there's only a couple things certain in uh, life and that's death and taxes. Well, it, it's true. I mean, you're going to you, you pay taxes everywhere. You pay it on your cable bill, at the gas pump, uh, at, the, at the grocery store when you buy your clothes and. And the federal income tax touches nearly everyone. Um, but most importantly, you need to determine how is your status determined, whether it's a U.S. person or a non-resident alien. And then B, how is it that your liability is incurred? And I want to emphasize status and liability are mutually exclusive issues. It doesn't matter if you're a U.S. person. Certainly, you're going to have a liability. But if you're a non-resident alien, you might have a liability as well. After all, Bruce Haber was a non-resident alien for the purposes of the federal income tax, and the reason he was found owing the tax is because the interest and the dividends accrued to him through his stock investment came from a corporation created by Congress. It was a corporation domiciled in the District of Columbia. It was a government corporation, and therefore he was in receipt of federal income. Whether he was a U.S. person or a non-resident alien, i.e., if he regarded himself as a United States citizen in the national realm, or even as, even if he uh, regards himself as a citizen of the state of New York, in either instance, he's going to be taxed because of the nature of the income. Right. Now, the, there might have been a difference in the amount of tax he owed between those two statuses. Would that be correct? That if he's a U.S. citizen, he had to file a tax return. Perhaps he had some write-offs or something like that that might work. But if you're a non-resident alien for tax purposes, then there is a set amount and they're just going to take it out of your – withhold it before you ever get that money. Is that correct? 
It kind of depends. There are different uh, ways. For example, uh, there are income associated with the United States trader business, and then there is income which is effectively connected to a United States trader business. And uh, the code section addresses several subcategories within those two categories, and uh, some of them it's a straight 30% tax, and uh, some of them it's a graduated tax such as a U.S. person uh, would pay. But what we're interested in is the 0% tax that a non-resident alien, and the tax code refers to that as a foreign estate, and that's uh, defined at 26 U.S.C. 7701 a31 as income which falls outside of subtitle A. And if you are a non-resident alien and the income that you have falls outside of subtitle A, guess what? It's not taxed. So not only is there not a 30% tax on that, nor is there a graduated rate of tax on that, there is zero tax on that. Not because you are evading it or getting away with it, but because that's those are the rules. The right. Those are the rules. And I, I love to ask people. I ask them. I say, hey, you know, uh, I think roughly uh, forty-three to forty-seven percent of uh, of the American people don't pay federal income tax. Do you think that's fair? And without exception, the answer I get is no. It's not fair. Right. And I say, well, why do you think that is? And they say, well, you know, I pay my fair share. And I say, well, what constitutes a fair share? See, the human mind, uh, without thinking, will inevitably turn towards socialism and communism. Exactly, yeah. The reason that the income tax is fair and the reason that half the people not paying is fair is because those are the rules. Right. And the tax is one of voluntary compliance. If you voluntarily avail yourself to the game, then you need to pay the rules. If you incur a tax liability, pay it. Do not evade it. Don't cheat by uh, deducting $5,000 worth of dirty socks and underwear that's delivered to the Goodwill or the Salvation Army. Well, unless play you really straight. do have $5,000 worth of dirty socks. If you've really got that, then legitimately you could take it. But Then by all means, you could. <laughs> Right. What but, you're saying uh, is you so, got to follow the rules. So the, the safe way to do it is follow the rules. There are a set of rules that uh, by learning how to aver Article 4 citizenship, learning how to interpret what is going on with the tax code, and then paying attention to the source of where you're getting your income, if you're able to put those together and create a scenario where your income is not sourced from a federal agency or a federal source – and you're also regarded as a non-resident alien, which means you're not, you're not resident it, as opposed to a resident alien. You're, you're non-resident and alien to the federal government, which it perfectly describes what an Article IV citizen is in relation to the federal government, but it, they do it kind of backwards because I think they do that on purpose, kind of like if I were to say, Please don't remain standing. You know, it, it's kind of like, yeah, right. oh, wait a minute, I got to think for a second. What does that mean? And well, when they, yeah, in, in one point of order of something that you said, because I, I don't want any of the listeners to be led astray. Sure. Uh, one of the reasons, and I, I think it's probably the biggest reason 
why people have a debilitating case of cognitive dissonance with respect to this status is because of the way that they are accustomed to averring their status. They'll say, for example, I'm a United States citizen and a resident of California. Right. So now let's examine the term non-resident alien. They're like, well, I'm a resident of California, so I'm not a non-resident. And because I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm not an alien. Therefore, that can't be me. But uh, our, our late great Justice Antonin Scalia loved to um, to discuss the art of the English language and how to uh, clearly elucidate a message. And uh, in one particular uh, topic that he was speaking on, he, he addressed the topic of hyphenation. And he used an example of a purple hyphen people eater versus a purple people hyphen eater. <laughs> right. 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 So one is a purple monster that eats all people. The other one is a monster that only eats purple people. Right. And so it's very important when you examine the word non-resident alien that you understand that it's not saying non-resident and alien. It's saying that you're not a resident alien. There you go. Yes. So uh, where people where people get led astray is they say, well, I'm a resident of, uh, you know, of of Minnesota and I'm a United States citizen. So I'm not an alien. So I can't be a non-resident alien. No, let's examine what a resident alien is. A resident alien is a foreign national who under the tax code has either been granted lawful permanent residence, y'all might know that as a green card, an I-551. He also might have uh, um, fulfilled the requirements of the substantial presence test, which I believe is more than 183 consecutive days on American soil, or he may have made an election under 6013 G&H of the tax code to be treated as if he were a resident. The uh, the tax code is chock full of nifty word uh, transformations that if you make the election, it doesn't say that you are, but it says that you can be treated as if you are. And if you can be treated as if you are, then for all practical purposes, you are. Right. And uh, you need to be aware of those things. So the prerequisite to being a resident alien is that you must be a foreign national. Corey, are you a foreign national? Well, no. No. So there is no way that you could be a resident alien. Right. If you're not a resident alien, you are a non-resident alien. Exactly. Now, you can see this type of thing played out in, uh, in, in other uh, examples. For example, you can go out and you can get an alcoholic beverage or you can get a non-alcoholic beverage. Right. With respect to religion, you might be a believer or you might be a non-believer. Uh, you might have pasteurized milk and you might have non-pasteurized pasteurized milk. Well, in the case of this definition, which it's uh, 
26 U.S.C. 7701B1B defines a non-resident alien as an individual. It says an individual is a non-resident alien if such individual is neither a citizen of the United States nor a resident of the United States within the meaning of subparagraph A. Now, if you look at subparagraph A, just preceding this section, it defines a resident of the United States to be a resident alien, and then it gives those three criteria which uh, were aforementioned. Uh, granted lawful permanent residence through the issuance of a green card, an I-551, someone who meets the criteria of the substantial presence test, or someone who has made an election under 6013G or H to be treated as if he were a resident of the United States. But that portion applies only to foreign nationals. So American nationals... U.S. passport holders, American nationals, can forego that. So now we've already demonstrated that there are two classes of citizenship. Now let's go back and read something that uh, we probably should have addressed a little bit earlier, but it's never too late to uh, go back and cover your tracks. But this is from the United States uh, Supreme Court in the case United States versus Cruikshank, 92 U.S. 542 at 549. And this was in 1875. It says that we have in our political system a government of the United States and a government of each of the several states. Each one of these governments is distinct from the others, and each has citizens of its own who owe it allegiance and whose rights within its jurisdiction it must protect. The same person may be at the same time a citizen of the United States and a citizen of a state. But his rights of citizenship under one of these governments will be different from those he has under the other. Now, there's another similar case. This one is the Slaughterhouse Cases, 83 U.S. 36 at 74, 1872. And they state, it is quite clear then that there is a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state, which are distinct from each other and which depend upon different characteristics or circumstances in the, in the individual. We think this distinction and its explicit recognition in this amendment of great weight in this argument because the next paragraph of this same section, which is the one mainly relied on by the plaintiffs in error, speaks only of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States and does not speak of those of citizens of the several states. The argument, however, made by the plaintiffs rests wholly on the assumption, and it was a wrong assumption, that the citizenship is the same and the privileges and immunities guaranteed by the clause are the same. So the Supreme Court tells you right there that you have United States citizenship and state citizenship. Now, we know, Corey, that in the 14th Amendment, that you can be a United States citizen and a state citizen. But here's the trick. This is the most important thing. And when you write this down, put a big box around this and put a star around it. There are two categories or two species of state citizenship. There's one that exists within the national context, right? which, which falls as, uh, well, which places the federal government as superior and dominant, and then there are those which you uh, address routinely in your program, citizens of the several states. The Supreme Court has said that D.C. and the territories are not states within the meaning of the Constitution, 
So when we refer to the several states, we are referring only to the 50 states. Now, last time I looked, the federal government is not seated in any of the 50 states. Now, it, it was technically located within Maryland, but Maryland ceded that uh, 68 square miles uh, to the federal government, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. And just as a nifty little aside, 32 square miles also occupied uh, the state of Virginia, but the federal government gave the state of Virginia that 32 square miles back in 1847 in what was known as the retrocession. So if you go and you look at a map, you could Google a map of the District of Columbia, it no longer appears as a 100 square mile diamond, although the the borders and the stone markers still exist in Virginia, the actual District of Columbia only sits in that 68 square mile area, which is nestled within the state of Maryland in its geographical sense. Fascinating. Yeah, the I, I did not realize that all of the land ceded by Virginia was retroceded back to Virginia. That That is new to me. Yeah, so the, the Pentagon and uh, Arlington National Cemetery are technically located in the state of Virginia, not the District of Columbia. Fascinating. Well, I did know that the uh, that the Pentagon was located in Virginia, not in the District of Columbia. Was the Pentagon originally, this was a little off topic here, getting in the weeds, but was the Pentagon, had that retrocede, had the, the retro secession of land from the federal government back to Virginia, would that, had that not occurred, would that put the Pentagon in the District of Columbia? I do believe so, as well as Arlington National Cemetery. Okay, fascinating. So the important takeaway here, and again, this is what you want to uh, understand, is there is state citizenship within the context of the 14th Amendment, which for all intents and purposes takes a back seat to national citizenship, United States citizenship. Yeah, in fact, there's a case, I can't think of it right now, but there's a case that has been used quite often to try and uh, you know, throw out there and say, oh, your Article 4 citizenship thing, you know, th- this whole concept doesn't work because there's a court case that says when, you know, if you're going to be a state citizen, then you have to be a United States citizen first. Yet if you look deeply into that court case, and I just cannot think of it at the moment, but if you look deeply at it, it's obvious to someone like you or I that the person is averring a a form of citizenship that is federal in nature and would require you to be a U.S. citizen before you can claim to be a citizen of one of the administrative states of the federal government. Yeah, that's right. And uh, just as, as proof that there are uh, two forms of state citizenship, here is another one that you're going to want to write down. This is Bradwell versus State of Illinois. 83 U.S. 130 at 138, dated 1872. Now listen to this. Listen very carefully. The 14th Amendment declares that citizens of the United States are citizens of the state within which they reside. Therefore, the plaintiff was, at the time of making her application, a citizen of the United States and a citizen of the state of Illinois. 
we do not here mean to say that there may not be a temporary residence in one state with intent to return to another, which will not create citizenship in the former. Here's the, here's the kicker. But the plaintiff states nothing to take her case out of the definition of citizenship of a state as defined by the first section of the 14th Amendment. So what she did when she averred her status, unlike Bruce Haber, is she said, I'm a United States citizen and a resident of Illinois. Right. That right. is that is classic 14th Amendment citizenship. It addresses national citizenship and it addresses state citizenship. But now I'm going to read an opening paragraph to a case called Stegletter versus McQuesten. This is 198 U.S. 141 in 1905. And for the listeners out there, I want you to listen very carefully to the difference between how the plaintiff and how the defendant averred their status. Listen carefully. The bill filed in the circuit court by the plaintiff McQuesten alleged her to be a citizen of the United States and of the state of Massachusetts and residing at Turner Falls in said state, meaning Massachusetts, while the defendants, Stegletter and wife, were alleged or averred to be citizens of the state of Washington and residing at the city of Seattle in said state. Did you pick that up, Corey? Yeah, let's say that again, because that was, it's nuanced, but you can hear it. So if you recall, um, in the Bradwell versus State of Illinois, they said the plaintiff states nothing to take her case out of the definition of citizenship of a state as defined by the first section of the 14th Amendment. Now listen to how McQuesten averred his status. I'm sorry, averred her status. She alleged herself to be a citizen of the United States and of the state of Massachusetts. So there you have it. You have United States. That is the when when you aver 14th Amendment citizenship, you have basically let go of the political jurisdiction of your state as superior and you default to the, you completely, as the, as they said in Elk versus Wilkin, you completely subject yourselves to the political jurisdiction of the United States. Remember, there is no shared sovereignty. It's either heads or it's tails. It can't be both. Right. You gotta pick one or the other. So McQuesten said she was a United States citizen and uh, a resident of the state of Massachusetts, whereas the defendant Stegletter said that they were citizens of the state of Washington and residents of Seattle. Exactly. See, now, in in the first case, it regarded United States citizenship and Massachusetts. In the second case, it dealt only with the state of Washington and the city of Seattle. So the entire realm of the defendant's status was averred within the sovereignty of the political jurisdiction of the state of Washington. Not D.C., Washington State over there on the West Coast. Right. So that's what the court was referring to in Bradwell versus State of Illinois, is that you, if you refer to yourself as a United States citizen and a resident of Florida, then what you are doing is you are 
placing yourself squarely in the political jurisdiction of the United States and you are surrendering some privileges and immunities, I would say, in my opinion, you are surrendering privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. Now, very quickly, to, to bring this back to Bruce Haber, let's go back to how he averred his status. He said, Frank Bruce Haber, a citizen of the state of New York and a resident of the borough of Brooklyn and the city of New York. What did he say, Corey? Or more importantly, what did he not say? That he was a citizen of the United States. Now, under the 14th Amendment, could he claim that status? Of course. Yeah. Is he a United States citizen under the 14th Amendment? Absolutely he is. But that's heads. He chose tails. He said, no, you know what? I'm a citizen of the state of New York and a resident of the borough of Brooklyn. So he did not surrender the political jurisdiction of the state of which he was a citizen of. But to claim United States citizenship, you basically let go of that political jurisdiction and you assume the political jurisdiction of the United States. The Supreme Court said so in Elk versus Wilkins. And as we recall, in state of Virginia versus state of West Virginia, those states have their own political jurisdiction. And as further uh, alluded to, both in um, Collector versus Day and Heath versus Alabama, there is no shared sovereignty. You're either sovereign over one or the other side is sovereign over the other. It's, it's heads or tails. It's not both. Right. So you can be a state citizen under the 14th Amendment, but your privileges and immunities of a state citizen under the 14th Amendment are the privileges and immunities of a United States citizen. Which may so, be very different from the privileges and immunities of a citizen of one of the several states. Well, that's exactly right. So let's let's go back and let's uh, let's take a look at Bruce Haber. So because we now know that state citizenship and United States citizenship are distinct, right? The Supreme Court said so in both the Slaughterhouse cases and United States versus Crookshank. It says they are distinct. Right. Distinct means different. Remember, it's heads or it's tails. Now, you can be a state citizen. You can be a United States citizen. You can Now, while you are a United States citizen, you can also be a state citizen. And this is the hard part to wrap your brain around. You have to remember that there are two species of state citizenship. You can be a state citizen that is a political subdivision and subject to the political jurisdiction of the United States, or you can be a citizen of your state completely insulated and within the political jurisdiction of your state. And to deny otherwise would to be deny the sovereignty of the state under the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Absolutely. Now, the reason that the courts won't discuss or won't justify one way or the other, if you say, hey, I'm a citizen of the state or I'm a citizen of the United States, is because this is a, uh, a political decision, right? Right. It, it's, it's like deciding where you want to live. Maybe you want to live in California. Maybe you want to live in Colorado. You don't need the government's uh, permission to do that. Maybe you want to be a Democrat. Maybe you want to be a Republican. Maybe you want to be a libertarian. Maybe you want to be a communist. These are all political questions and things that the courts can't involve themselves in. Uh, a lot of patriot groups out there, uh, while we're on the topic of uh, political questions, they, uh, they like to try to challenge the 
um, validity of the 16th Amendment or the 14th Amendment and uh, by stating that, oh, that these amendments weren't properly ratified. Now, that may or may not be true. I've heard these arguments. I, I personally have not delved wholeheartedly into these because I frankly don't believe that it matters because it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, if you go to Boston into a souvenir shop and buy a constitution, you're going to find the 14th and the 16th Amendment in there. Uh, our, our, our jurisprudence is replete with all kinds of court cases that make reference to the 16th and 14th Amendment. So if you want to be taken seriously, if you don't want to be uh, called a patriot nut job, uh, you got to stop saying that the 14th and the 16th Amendments are, are not legitimate. They're, they're with us, okay, for all practical purposes. And we want to be practical. We, we don't want to, you know, continue to bang our heads against a, a concrete wall. We want to try to find solutions that work. And uh, one thing that, that I believe will serve people well is ask yourself, don't, don't sit there and just assume that the government is, has gone rogue or uh, is, is unconstitutional. Ask yourself, how is it that they are accomplishing what it is that they do? I can tell you that in almost every instance, they obtain your consent or they obtain a status by virtue of your election. Right. And then based upon that consent and election, you fill out a piece of paper, you sign it, and that piece of paper is what could amount to evidence, which then amounts to what's known as a judiciable fact. And courts, you know, unlike uh, Judge Judy in the People's Court, you know, the the powers that be love the American people to actually think that you get to go stand in front of a judge and argue your case. It doesn't work that way. The judge looks at the facts, which are based on, you know, does your walk match your talk? And then they measure those facts against the law, and then a decision is rendered. And in almost every case, uh, although people may have a piece of the puzzle, uh, they have not been thorough in the way that they have uh, characterized themselves. And so there are facts, judiciable facts out there that don't, uh, don't measure up. And so that's why frequently they don't win. So going back to Frank Bruce Haber, the Frank Bruce Haber case, are, are, are we good on that so far, Corey? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I'd like to do is let's, uh, let's take the Bruce Haber case apart a little bit more and, and look at what's really going on, and then we'll get to the punchline on this thing. Recall in his complaint that he identified the Union Pacific Railroad Company as a corporation and citizen of the state of Utah. Now, recall that under the Pacific Railway Act of 1862, the railroad was first and foremost a creation of Congress, so it was a corporation with a domicile in the District of Columbia. But as our country uh, progressed through the 1800s, federal territory uh, became state territory, as, uh, say, for example, the Utah Territory or the Colorado or Wyoming Territory became states. What happens is that federal territory, there are once the population became sizable enough, they had governors uh, ruling over those areas. We, we heard about that in Downs versus Bidwell, and they were appointed by the president. 
But then at some point, uh, Congress incorporated those territories. And what an incorporated territory is, not to be uh, confused with an unincorporated territory, an incorporated territory is one that is getting ready to be granted statehood. So, for example, Puerto Rico is an organized territory, but it is unincorporated. It has not had the full complement of constitutional provisions uh, tendered to it. And that goes for all of the territories that we have. And in fact, American Samoa is not even an organized territory. It is an unorganized possession. And we can talk more about that momentarily. But once a territory became an incorporated territory, the Constitution applied in that territory in exactly the same manner as it did uh, in any of the several states. And then once it was granted statehood, it went through a transformation and became a sovereign state on equal footing with those which ratified the Constitution. So the Union Pacific Railroad, if you can picture this railroad going through the western federal territory and then this federal territory after the fact becoming the sovereign state of Utah, um, the federal government in recognizing the sovereignty of that state had to get permission to operate within that state's geographical boundaries. Remember, the state is not the geography. It's the people, the government, and the geography. Right. And in order to operate in those boundaries, they have to file articles of incorporation with the state. So the Union Pacific Railroad did, in fact, file articles of incorporation in the state of Utah. And what that allowed the uh, Union Pacific Railroad to be regarded as as a Utah corporation, but only from the perspective of citizens of Utah. Right. Right. So let's look at what the Supreme Court said about this in Southern Railway Company versus Allison. This is 190 U.S. 326 at 337. And when I say at 337, that's the pen site. That is the specific page where you can find this passage uh, that, that I'm reading. And here's what it says. It says, a corporation may be made what is termed a domestic corporation or inform a domestic corporation of a state in compliance with the legislation thereof by filing a copy of its charter and bylaws with the Secretary of State. Yet such fact does not affect the character of the original corporation. It does not thereby become a citizen of the state in which a copy of its charter is filed so far as to affect the jurisdiction of the federal courts upon a question of diverse citizenship. So what this means is that let's say that a citizen of Utah was, uh, was injured on the Union Pacific Railroad in Utah. Then that citizen could bring suit against the Union Pacific Railroad in the state of Utah because the dispute operated wholly within that, ge within that geographical region. But now recall, Bruce Haber was a citizen of the state of New York, and he averred, although somewhat incorrectly, it is true that Union Pacific was a corporation of Utah because it had filed articles of incorporation there. But remember that first and foremost, it was a D.C. corporation. And so because of the diversity of citizenship between Bruce Haber and the Union Pacific Railroad, according to Southern Railway Company versus Allison, the Union Pacific Railroad had to be regarded in its original 
character that is a DC corporation. And you know, Corey, that anything that belongs or falls under the purview of the federal government is a domestic corporation. Of course. Yeah. Now, if we go back to Treasury Decision 2313, remember how we said you asked, was this an accident or was this a conspiracy? You know, when they refer to Bruce Haber as a non-resident alien, I find that to be an unbelievable and forthright, transparent admission by our federal government of the uh, difference between being a United States citizen under the tax code and being a citizen of one of the several states under the tax code without the purview of the 14th Amendment. Uh, but what's very misleading is they refer to the corporation as a domestic corporation. Now, when you compare the Treasury Decision 2313 and you hold that in your right hand and you put it up next to uh, his complaint and you see that Bruce Haber regards the Union Pacific Railroad in its character as a Utah corporation, if you were not familiar with this ruling in Southern Railway Company versus Allison, this would lead an unsophisticated individual to believe that any corporation created anywhere in the United States of America is a domestic corporation, and that simply is not true. Right. So here's the punchline on this, and here's the big takeaway on the Bruce Haber case. He lost his case. Why? Because the income accrued to him was federal income. It's a federal income tax. He's not taxed on the income. He's taxed on the privilege of making money in concert with the federal government. The amount of income that he used is that he earned or accrued is the measuring stick by which the tax is determined. It's a very, very subtle nuance, but that's what people need to understand. Now, had the Union Pacific Railroad originally been a creation of the state of Utah, which you're led to believe when you read the complaint, Bruce Haber would not have owed any tax whatsoever on that income because that income would not have been from a United States source. It would have been from a Utah source. Right. And and just to put a finer point on that, he would not have owed any federal income tax. The states would have authority to come up with a tax scheme on their own. But in this case, that's not what was brought up here. Um, had this been a, a, like you say, a genuine state corporation that had nothing to do with the federal government, the federal government would have no business uh, requiring a withholding of income tax or withholding of tax. And also, uh, it kind of occurred to me that maybe an, another way to describe the way the tax liability occurs is that the tax liability before you ever make a penny, if the money you're planning on getting is coming from the United States, then that's what generates the tax liability, that there is a tax liability, which is then determined by how much income you have received. So if you don't receive any income, then there won't be a tax liability that you would actually have to pay. But theoretically, there is a tax liability associated with it, even though there isn't an actual tax that's owed because the income was zero. That's exactly right. And, and you know, it, it creates the misunderstanding that 
earning money or receiving income is the you know that any time you you make money that you have to draft a tax off that and that's that's simply not true um you know if if the young man down the street comes to your house and cuts your grass and you pay him twenty dollars is that a taxable event well the well, answer depends. is no yeah well i mean it could depend but if right. you look on if you look on any one of our federal reserve notes it says this note is legal tender for all debts public and private yeah well public debts are taxable private debts are not uh a, a private cash debt, a private payment is just that. It's something that transpires in the private sector apart from the public sector or apart from a quasi-public uh, nexus. And so um, I could that's be. an example. And in fact, if you pull up uh, the IRS's own instructions for a 1099 miscellaneous forms, it tells you to submit this form only in the course of your trade or business. Personal payments are not reportable. Right, right. Personal payments are not reportable. Yeah. So, um, but I, one one thing you mentioned that I want to address, and it's it's very very important, um, in the modern uh, tax scheme that we have in place now, there is no state income tax owed if there's no federal liability. Right. Yeah. None at all. Now, and this this dovetails in perfectly with what we understand about United States citizenship being paramount and then state citizenship being secondary. So the federal government being the dominant party is going to get their tax first, and then the state as a political subdivision of the United States in that scheme is going to get an income tax if they have one. But if you don't have a federal income tax liability – then there's no state income tax liability. Now, ad valorem property taxes that uh, fall on land under a state constitution, that's a completely different issue. Of course, we're, yeah. We're talking about the federal income tax here. Um, and, and I would propose that the reason why in the modern taxation system that if you have no federal tax that you wouldn't owe a state tax, it's because the the states that are actually taxing you today – those are the federal states that we referred to earlier when we talked about the two different types of states. These states are directly connected to the federal government in that they are not guaranteed a Republican form of government. They operate uh, differently than the governments of the several states. And yeah, the way I like to think about it is that, you know, under the 14th Amendment, whether you're dealing with the federal government or the state government – that almost seems to be an, it, where you interface the government with respect to public rights, whereas your private rights, private property, that all is going to exist in the uh, privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. And, it, and it's virtually uh, – it's it's invisible with Com respect complete. to the state and federal governments. Right. I mean it's, it's, it's hidden. You basically – well, we, we that, that was the term used uh, – in the um, uh, oh gosh, I'll think of her name in a second. She was in Texas. The girl who was born, she had no um, uh, no birth certificate. She was born to parents that I think, for religious purposes, they kept themselves very separated from government. And she tried to get into school. She tried to get a driver's license. She was trying to get a social security card. And she was told, and it's a clip that's really fascinating, that legally she does not exist. That, that's how the government viewed her, was that legally she did not exist. She was a, an 
a prime example of what an Article 4 citizen is. In other words, she had absolutely no connection to the federal government or any of its agencies, and she was 100% invisible. And one of the uh, posts, I think it was on Reason TV, referred to her as the invisible girl. When you are an Article 4 citizen, the framers created this on purpose that you are invisible to the federal government. That's exactly right. But you know, unfortunately today, nearly every single mode of making a living has been co-opted by the government in some fashion by virtue of this misunderstanding of state citizenship. It, uh, the, the 14th Amendment, although it's completely legitimate, it has become pervasive. Uh, but you know, bear in mind uh, Frank Bruce Haber, you know, he was born in 1884. That was after the 14th Amendment. And this case was uh, 1914 through 1916. And he, just like the uh, the court said in, uh, was it uh, Bradwell versus State of Illinois, he took his definition of citizenship of a state out of the 14th Amendment when he said that he was a citizen of the state of New York and a resident of the borough of Brooklyn. By, by stating it that way, he has removed it out of the 14th Amendment. He is now completely insulated by the political jurisdiction of his state. He has not subjected himself completely, and that, that word completely is key, to the political jurisdiction of the United States. And I want to stress, this does not mean, there are so many people that try to say, I'm a citizen of the state of Ohio, therefore, federal law does not apply to me. Baloney. It does. Stop with these uh, crazy patriot arguments. There's subject matter jurisdiction that even if you were on Mars and you dabble in federal subject matter, the feds have jurisdiction over you. But what's important, and remember when we talked about the alphabet, starting the tax discussion with A, how is it that your tax status is established? Well, if you say, yeah, I'm a United States citizen, if you want to adopt that status for yourself, then by all means, claim that status and you will be regarded as a U.S. person under the tax code. And guess what a U.S. person always has to do? He has to always furnish a taxpayer ID number, whereas a non-resident alien only has to furnish a taxpayer ID number when he receives United States sourced income. Well, what if a non-resident alien receives Utah-sourced income or Colorado-sourced income? Then that income constitutes a foreign estate, and it falls outside of Subtitle A. This isn't my opinion. This is what the law says. You know, almost everybody at some point in their lives have said, well, yeah, I'm a U.S. citizen, and they filed a Form 1040. So what do you think are the implications of this, Corey? As far as you know, it, it, you're a you're a smart guy, and you can, you're able to put the pieces together. If we understand that Bruce Haber averred his citizenship strictly within the realm of New York, and if just say if by chance the Union Pacific Railroad was truly a corporation of the state of Utah and not the federal government, what are the implications of that to yeah. a, to someone who's a non-resident alien? So let's let's uh, let's talk about some of these new marijuana businesses that are popping up in uh, some of these states. You know, these marijuana businesses they spend a ton of money on security because the banks are not allowing them 
to put their money into a bank account because they're they're worried about getting in trouble under the Controlled Substance Act. Right. But the problem is is that these uh, these businesses uh, went and they obtained a, uh, a an artificial entity from their respective Secretary of State. Say let's let's take uh, State of Colorado as an example. Let's say uh, you you create the uh, ABC Green Crop Company. Right. And uh, they go and they create this uh, LLC in the state of Colorado. But then because they don't understand, they just think, well, if I sell something, I'm going to have to pay a tax on the income, not realizing that, hey, Colorado is a sovereign state. And if we regard ourselves as citizens and residents of the state of Colorado, and then if we keep our business not as a United States trader business, but strictly as a Colorado trader business, then we as non-resident aliens would be accruing a foreign estate when we engage in our marijuana sales. So what these individuals did, though, is they formed these companies in the state, and then they filled out an SS4, which is an IRS form to apply for an employer identification number. And what they did is not only were they now a Colorado trader business, now they had prima facie evidence on record as also being engaged in a United States trader business. So it was both a Colorado trader business and a United States trader business, whereas before obtaining the EIN, it was only a Colorado trader business. Right. So now that it has this EIN, it is now plugged into federal subject matter and selling a controlled substance is a problem under the Controlled Substance Act. And so the banks are saying, uh, you know, if you've got an EIN, you can't, uh, you know, and, and what they also probably did is they made an election to treat themselves as domestic entities under federal law. Of and course. We'll, we'll come up on that regulation momentarily. But uh, had they submitted a W-8 without an EIN, there should be no problem with the bank allowing them to engage in their Colorado trader business, even though they may not morally agree with it. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's completely legal. But as soon as they uh, acquired that United States character, uh, not just the Colorado character, but also the United States character, and they open themselves up to problems. So the federal government finds itself on the horns of a dilemma. Do they prosecute under the Controlled Substance Act or do they turn a blind eye to it and collect the tax revenue? And the other thing I find fascinating, at least here in California, about the marijuana laws is that in order to uh, in, in in order to take advantage of the medical marijuana laws here in California, you have to be registered as a U.S. corporate. It's highly regulated there. It, it's really fascinating to me, the the limited knowledge I have of it, that if you're going to say, hey, I'm a caregiver. In other words, the reason why you're allowed to sell marijuana is because the state passed this medical marijuana law, then that also would put you in federal jurisdiction because of the way that permission was granted at the state level. An Article 4 citizen is not going to need a medical marijuana license law to be able to sell marijuana. At least that's my interpretation. And that... Um, that by maintaining that Article 4 citizenship and the separation from the federal government, then the patients, if they're U.S. citizens, they might need to have their recommendation from a doctor so that way they don't get busted for possessing marijuana. 
but the person actually selling it or the caregiver, that person wouldn't need any type of license or approval from the federal government because they are invisible to the federal government and its administrative divisions. Well, yeah, and, and I know your listeners may be uh, maybe fascinated, and maybe some of them are even understanding this. But let's let's talk about a real world application here, and, and these are ones where you're going to want to sharpen your pencil. You're going to want to write these down, and when you get a chance, I would also encourage you to uh, print these out because the tax code has a way of changing, and the Treasury regulations have a way of changing when uh, individuals discover very illuminating uh, portions therein. Yeah, they move and, it. Uh, Reword it and move it. Or, yeah, or change it or make it more uh, ambiguous. But uh, so let's say that you've, you've you know, regarded yourself as a U.S. person all these years, and, and now you want to, uh, you want to revert back to uh, the status of non-resident alien like Frank Bruce Haber. Well, well, what do you do? Can you change it? Well, here's the regulation that tells you how to do it. It's 26 CFR 301.6109-1, lowercase g, 1, lowercase Roman numeral I, G1I. And it says, a Social Security number is generally identified in the records and database of the IRS as a number belonging to a U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. A person may establish a different status for the number by providing proof of foreign status with the IRS under such procedures as the IRS shall prescribe, including the use of a form as the IRS may specify. Upon accepting an individual as a non-resident alien individual, the IRS will assign the status to the individual's Social Security number. Now, recall that the IRS only deals with taxpayers. They don't deal with non-taxpayers. In fact, here's a case, Long versus Rasmussen, 281 Federal Reporter 236 at 238. This was out of the District of Montana in 1922. It says, the revenue laws are a code or system and regulation of tax assessment and collection. They relate to taxpayers and not to non-taxpayers. The latter are without their scope. No procedure is prescribed for non-taxpayers, and no attempt is made to annul any of their rights and remedies in due course of law. With them, Congress does not assume to deal, and they are neither of the subject nor of the object of the revenue laws. So where a lot of people get in trouble, and there are many people in the country that understand that as a state citizen, they're non-resident aliens for the purpose of the federal income tax. But what most people do that have gotten in trouble with the service is they said, oh, you know what? I'm an non-resident alien. I don't, I don't have to pay federal income tax anymore. Remember, your status and your liability are mutually exclusive issues. If you work for a major U.S. corporation and you have a W-4, even if you're a non-resident alien, you're going to owe federal income tax. If you fill out a W-4, you're going to get a W-2, and you need to f file a federal income tax. And if you are a non-resident alien, that would be on Form 1040-NR. And that's what uh, the regulation 301-6109-1 G1I is talking about. It says, by use of a form. Now, did you notice, Corey, nowhere in that passage did it say that you need to present a foreign passport, that you need to prove you're a foreign national? No, you simply do it by submitting a form. And why do you prove your status by submitting a form? It's easy. We talked about it. Your choice of citizenship 
and your choice of which political jurisdiction you would like to defer to is a political question. It's like choosing your religion, choosing your, choosing your political party affiliation, choosing where you live. This is something you choose. You simply declare it. As we said at the beginning of the show, you make elections, and those elections have consequences. So let's look at another example. Here is uh, – write this one down, 26 CFR, 1.1441-1, capital T, lowercase b, numeral 2, lowercase Roman numeral 3, that's three I's, and a capital A. Now, this is a uh, laborious regulation, but I'm going to skip ahead in the regulation, and, and, and before I read it, keep in mind there are two forms that you can fill out at a bank. One is a W-9, and a W-9 is filled out by a U.S. person. Whether that's a natural person or a juristic person, it's a U.S. person as defined in the code at 7701A30. And what does a U.S. person always have to give the bank? A Social Security number. Now, a W-9, think of that as like an on switch. Well, there's an antithesis to a W-9. It's called a W-8, and that's what a foreign person would submit, whether it's a foreign corporation or a non-resident alien. The non-resident alien is the status that applies to a natural person. So listen to this example in this regulation I just cited. A limited liability company, we'll call it A, organized under the laws of the state of Delaware, opens an account at a U.S. bank. Upon opening of the account, the bank requests Company A to furnish a Form W-9 as required under Section 6049A and the regulations under that section. Company A does not have an election in effect under 301-7701-3C1I of this chapter and therefore is not treated as an organization taxable as a corporation including for purposes of the exempt recipient provisions in 1.6049-4. If A has a single owner and the owner is a foreign person, now don't think foreign national, this could be Frank Brucehaber, right. right? a citizen right. of one of the states. If company A has a single owner and the owner is a foreign person, as defined in paragraph C2 of this section, then A may not furnish a form W-9, because it may not represent that it is a U.S. person for purposes of the provisions of Chapters 3, 4, and 61 of the Code and Section 3406. Therefore, A must furnish a Form W-8 with the name, address, and taxpayer ID number, parentheses, if required, if required, of the foreign person who is the single owner in the same manner as if the account were opened directly by the foreign single owner. Now, a U.S. person always has to. Now, when would a foreign person – it says if required. When would a foreign person have to submit a taxpayer ID number? The answer to that question is if he submits any one of the IRS variety forms W-8, W-8-B-E-N, W-8-E-C-I, W-8-I-M-Y, W-8-B-E-N-E. There are several species of W-8 forms, and all of those forms, remember, deal with taxpayers. However, the regulations allow a foreign person to create a substitute form. So it's incumbent on an individual who's in, not engaged in United States trader business, but whose income comes exclusively from a foreign estate 
to create a substitute form W-8 and submit that in lieu of the published forms by the IRS. And for those of you that have an interest in doing so, you can go and read the uh, regulations that tell you how to create your own substitute form. And the Internal Revenue or Service's own manuals also uh, give instructions on how to do that. And a lot of people think, well, how can I do that? That, that That's against the rules. No, they, uh, they, they can't infringe upon private conduct. And so if you're going to protect your foreign status, if you're going to protect the foreign nature of your income, then you have to submit it on a substitute form W-8 without a taxpayer ID number because any of the other varieties of published form W-8s that the IRS offers, they do require a taxpayer ID number. So this is an area that uh, for those who want to do this, they need to get uh, pretty smart on it and understand. Now, one final thing that I would uh, like to go over, Corey, because what's going to happen if an individual goes to the bank is they say, well, I'm going to open up an account under foreign status. Under our beloved USA Patriot Act, uh, the banks now require, and here's what it says, it requires a passport number and country of issuance. Now, a passport is indicative of an individual's nationality. Nationality is not the same thing as citizenship. I want to show you, I want to read to you what our own Department of State says on that matter. While most people, this is out of Volume 7 of the Foreign Affairs Manual, Section 1111B. While most people in countries use the term citizenship and nationality interchangeably, U.S. law differentiates between the two. Under current law, all U.S. citizens are U.S. nationals, but not all U.S. nationals are U.S. citizens. So when you go in and you say, I'm going to be opening up uh, an account, they're going to say, well, where are you from? And if you say Texas, they're going to say, well, you're a U.S. citizen. Right. Well, the answer to that is, well, that's true under the 14th Amendment. However, uh, I'm claiming a status outside of the 14th Amendment. This, it's not that the tax code or the case law precludes you from doing these things. What's going to preclude you from doing this is going to be the 24-year-old intern at the bank who, who may even still be going to school, who is going to be the customer service representative who doesn't understand any of this. Right. And she is the gatekeeper between you and opening this account. But what you need to do is when, when you look at this, they have a drop-down window that lists every country from Afghanistan down to Zimbabwe. And guess what country, with respect to passports, is generally not on the list? Well, that would be the United States. That's right. Now, some banks offer that and some don't. If they don't offer it, the proper election would be under the letter O, other. Right. And under other, they would select other and you would just – they would type in the data field, United States of America, and you would give them your passport number. And then you would be in full compliance with the USA Patriot Act with respect to properly identifying every account holder who has a foreign status. Yeah. Foreign status doesn't necessarily mean foreign national. It can also mean a foreign jurisdiction, and the, the uh, Corpus Juris Secundum uh, spells that out as well, as well as Bouvier's Law Dictionary. So uh, one other citation that I, I would like to uh, read to, you, to your listeners, and this is from 1898. It's the United States 
versus Wong Kim Ark. And it says as follows. The citation for this is 169 U.S. 649 at 656 from 1898, United States versus Wong Kim Ark. The law of England and of almost all civilized countries ascribes to each individual at his birth two distinct legal states or conditions, one by virtue of which he becomes the subject of some particular country, binding him by the tie of natural allegiance and which may be called his political status. Another by virtue of which he has ascribed to him the character of a citizen of some particular country and as such is possessed of certain municipal rights and subject to certain obligations, which latter character is the civil status or condition of the individual and may be quite different from his political status. So your political status is your nationality and your nationality is your national citizenship plus your allegiance, your pledge of allegiance. American Samoans are not United States citizens. They are non-citizen nationals. Remember, I told you we would address them. They are an unorganized, unincorporated possession of the United States. They've never had the citizenship clause extended to them through an act of Congress, but they have been given a different appellation called non-citizen national of the United States. 22 U.S.C. 212 states that and this is with respect to the issuance of a passport, no passport shall be granted or issued to or verified for any other persons than those owing allegiance, whether citizens or not, to the United States. That's 22 U.S.C. 212. And the term passport is defined at 8 U.S.C. 1101-A30 as any travel document issued by competent authority showing the bearer's origin, identity, and nationality, if any, which is valid for the admission of the bearer into a foreign country. So your nationality is what they're asking for at the bank, not your citizenship. But the citizenship that they're asking for is for the stack status. Now, according to Wong Kim Ark, you have two statuses, your political status and your civil status. Your civil status is derived from your domicile. And if you elect to be a United States citizen, then you are, in essence, electing for yourself a national domicile, which there, there could be some debate on this, whether or not it's a national domicile or a domicile in the District of Columbia. The end result is the same. Black's Law Dictionary defines the national domicile as the domicile of a person considered as being within the territory of a particular nation and not with reference to a particular locality or subdivision of a nation. So again, when we refer to a United States citizenship, we are relegating ourselves completely to the political jurisdiction of the United States and localities or political subdivisions in their political jurisdictions are irrelevant. It goes on to explain what a quasi-national domicile is. That's one involving residence in a state. Notice they use the word residence and not domicile right. in defining it. Yes. And that's because the 14th Amendment says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the state in which they reside. So state citizenship under the 14th Amendment occurs only by virtue of you residing in your given state, whereas in uh, Article 4 citizenship, if you claim to be a citizen and resident of the state, you have both a you have you may reside in that state and you may be domiciled. But the important thing is, is that you are not domiciled in a national context and you are not domiciled in the District of Columbia. Right. So it's important to remember two statuses, political status. That's your nationality. Nationality is your citizenship, your national citizenship plus your allegiance. 
Your civil status is your domicile. Domicile is your fixed and permanent legal home and the place you intend to make as such. So it has a function of both geographic location and intent. Intent being a function of the future. Nobody knows what it is that you intend to do except you. But if the federal government or any other government asks you to declare a civil status, you are in essence electing a status which is representative of your intent. Right. And since the government cannot tell you what your intentions are, they can only accept you at your word. If you elect a domicile in the national in the national context or if you elect a domicile in the District of Columbia, they have no choice but to let you do that and they will gladly do it. Yeah. Yeah, they they're only too happy to let you do that. So the important takeaway from all of this is that yes, the 16th Amendment is legitimate. If you owe a federal income tax, you should pay it. Right. And uh, the 14th Amendment is legitimate. It applies if you want it to. If uh, you would like to regard yourself as belonging to the political jurisdiction of your state, it doesn't mean that you're not an American. It just gives you a, an opportunity to claim a different status under certain federal laws. You still may be – you still may choose to regard yourself as a U.S. citizen in certain interests – in certain instances. Um, but in, I can tell you that in the tax code spells this out clearly that if you're a non-resident alien, you actually have the ability to receive income from a foreign estate and have it fall without subtitle A. And so Bruce Haber, Frank Bruce Haber, and, and we know he was, you know, he was not a foreign national. He was born in, in New York. We have uh, state census records. We have federal census records. We have uh, birth records. We have marriage certificates. We have draft cards. We have death certificates, all of which indicate he was born in Brooklyn, New York. These are state documents. These constitute judiciable facts in courts of law. So it's it's not a uh, wishful thinking that that you know that maybe Bruce Haber was really a foreign national just here immigrating to New York. No, Bruce Haber was he, born. As a matter of fact, both of his parents were born in Brooklyn, New York. Right. It was his grandparents that immigrated from Hanover, Germany. So if as a citizen and resident of the state of New York, he was a non-resident alien for federal income tax purposes. However, he lost his case. Why? Because although the Union Pacific Railroad was a corporation in Utah, it was first and foremost a corporation in the District of Columbia. Thus, the income accrued from interest and dividends was from a domestic source under federal law, meaning a United States source. And whether you're a U.S. person or a non-resident alien, if you receive federal income, it is the legitimate and constitutional object of the federal income tax. Exactly. Had he received that income from a foreign source, whether from a foreign nation or from a foreign jurisdiction, then he would have not paid the federal income tax. And that is the big takeaway from the Bruce Haber versus Union Pacific case. It's not that he lost, but it's what's revealed in the analysis of the post-game wrap-up, if you will, where you analyze how he averred his status in his complaint and how the Treasury Department regarded him in light of that averment and then what the true nature of the Union Pacific Railroad was. Although it was a corporation in Utah, it was first and foremost a federal corporation, and it didn't matter if that corporation ran track all the way to the moon. It was still a domestic corporation in the eyes of the federal government because they created it. Yes. And any any income from a domestic corporation is going to be subject to tax. That's Those are the rules. And setting up... 
I mean, we're, we're a few degrees of separation away from having a situation where you have a foreign corporation hiring non-resident aliens that are, you know, not, uh, uh, that have no connection to the federal government. But this, this is the information that allows that possibility to happen. Because right now, what everybody is doing is what the government really wants you to do. And that is just mindlessly accepting, uh, federal status for both the, uh, the source of your corporation if you're an employer, uh, and as a worker. You're just mindlessly saying, yep, I'm in DC. And, uh, that, that is this information here that you've presented. I hope people listen to this over and over and over again and that they write the citations down and go back and review it. Cause listening to this in one pass, there's no way to take it all in. You have to listen to it over and over again. Go back, challenge those sites, look up those sites, learn how to look up when, uh, uh when JP referenced a pin site, what that means. Those are, those are all tools that uh, will set you apart as a citizen from the average person uh, here in America. Yeah, and, uh, and wrap it up, I'd like to uh, give one final analogy that uh, our former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis gave, and it, it was this. He said, every day when I drive into work from Virginia into the District of Columbia, I have a choice. I can go directly to work on a toll road and – I get there very quickly, but I have to pay a toll. Or if I like, I can go north of the toll road, take a more circuitous route, but I don't have to pay a toll. Now, if I take the toll road and don't pay the toll, that's akin to tax evasion. Whereas if I take a more circuitous route and don't bypass the toll road, that's tax avoidance. The problem with the American people today is they don't realize that there is another route to work. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic analogy. Uh, I, I would say that based on the complications and everything they do to U.S. citizens, that it's really the more circuitous job that they put the toll road on and the straightforward just get there as quick as possible is Article 4 citizenship. But the point is, there is another route, and that's what this the entire time that we've had with you is explaining that the codes support that there's another route. The regulations support it. Uh, the Supreme Court, their decisions support uh, it. It should absolutely be completely mind-blowing to anybody who is questioning the idea of Article 4 citizenship to look at Frank Brucehaber and realize Here's a guy born in New York, and for tax purposes, the federal government regards him as a non-resident alien. Uh, I I think that even though we know you started off the show saying that most U.S. citizens fail a very simple tax quiz, if you were to ask, is it possible for somebody born in New York or any of the other several states to be regarded while living here in the United States of America to be regarded as a non-resident alien for tax purposes, I, I think it would be hard-pressed to find maybe five people in the entire country that could articulate uh, what that means. And you and me being, well, you being one of them for sure, I would give a good shot at it. But the the point is, 
this is such incredibly valuable information to the average American that it is there, but it it almost seems so unbelievable that, you know, if, if I were to say, hey, it's possible to get a Supreme Court decision that says you're a non-resident alien uh, for tax purposes, had this case, the Bruce Aber case not happened, and I'm just saying, look, theoretically, I think this could happen. Uh, most people would say you're absolutely nuts. They, they just would not believe it. But there is no question about it. This is a real case. This is good case law. It, it, the regulations are there. Everything is there to support the idea that you have a choice. You don't have to take that toll road. You can take what is in today's world a little bit more circuitous route, but you can aver Article 4 citizenship and uh, avoid unnecessary taxation. Of course, if your income is sourced from a U.S. source right now, then you're going to have a whole different uh, different um, situation. But that's building towards the goal of having corporations that employ people that are foreign corporations with respect to the federal government. And that would be a fantastic way of keeping wealth in the pockets of Americans rather than having it stolen through a myriad of different uh, tax schemes that happen uh, throughout. It's true tax reform, Corey. That's absolutely what it is. It's true tax reform. It, it's true tax reform, and it starts in your living room, not in Congress. That's exactly right because, you know what, they're not going to change it. No, of course not. No. Not going to. Uh, you know, you can elect a populist candidate, and uh, we already see that uh, some of those promises, although many are fulfilled, some of them are not. And, uh, you know, this the gentleman we have in office now is, is certainly extraordinary by uh, in terms of normal politicians. But in the end, the swamp is uh, is awfully big. So um, Samuel Adams once said it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires in the minds of men. It only takes a handful of people to understand this information and implement it to effectuate a substantial change in the way things uh, take place in this country. Well, absolutely. If you if you think of just any business that is subject to heavy uh, fees and regulations of the federal government, and you establish a competing business that doesn't have to pay those fees and taxes, uh, you have a huge advantage. And I think that that is going to be the uh, uh, one of the biggest things that will happen out of people averring Article 4 citizenship and doing it correctly is that they will be able to set up businesses and have um, a business that they're able to engage in where they keep the majority of their money. It's uh, it's not a business that the federal government literally owns, and then you get to keep whatever they decide not to take. If you're competing against a U.S. business as a foreign uh, business under as an Article Four citizen, you have a huge advantage. And I think we're very close to seeing major businesses do that. One of them that, to me, would absolutely make sense is a firearms business. If you're a, a company or somebody I know here in California, I don't know if if you've seen this before, JP, but uh, here in California, there are some boutique firearms manufacturers that, you know, you got a couple of guys in a very small industrial space with uh, excellent tooling and they buy good materials and they're able to produce 
you know, like a, a, a very high quality model 1911 uh, gun, but you know, like a nine millimeter or something like that. But they they are under such intense scrutiny by the federal government that it's almost a, a labor of love because they can't really make any money at it. Yet, if they were to create a corporation and a business that is invisible to the federal government legally, then they wouldn't have all that overbearing regulation that they have on them, and they would be able to produce these top-of-the-line firearms that could really compete with some of the major firearms manufacturers in both price and exceed on quality. So that's just one idea. There's a whole bunch of different things where... Well, and, and you bring up a good point because the National Firearms Act is codified in Chapter 53 of the Internal Revenue Code. And who is the only class of natural person who has the ability to not be subject to the tax code? A non-taxpayer. A non-resident <laughs> alien or a foreign person. So right, right. If, if you are strictly a uh, a state business like you just described and you're not engaged in a United States trader business but only a Colorado trader business or an Idaho trader business, I don't see how the National Firearms Act is going to apply in that instance. I think you probably would end up if you're going to start a business like that, you'd want to be prepared that you're probably going to end up in the Supreme Court. But there's an indication from Justice Thomas that uh, in in the uh, uh, Prince v. United States concurring opinion, which is a, a rare thing to happen, but he wrote straight up that the federal government's uh, regulatory scheme may run afoul of the Second Amendment for purely intrastate uh, gun transactions. And what we're doing here with you, JP, what you've described and what you've shown us here is the technical side of what Justice Thomas was kind of nodding to. And it's really important. So I, I am so grateful that you came on. Um, the amount of information that came out today, I've got a ton of notes. Uh, I hope everybody listening to this has taken notes. Hit the replay button because you're going to want to hear this again. And start working towards averring Article 4 citizenship. That's, that's what the whole point is of being able to understand this information and do it without putting yourself in a position of being a tax protester with some crazy nut job idea of how you can get away without paying any taxes. So, all right, JP, uh, we, one of the benefits of having our own network is that we're not subject to any type of time frame. Uh, but we've had you here for quite a while. We certainly appreciate the just a uh, very information dense presentation. It was uh, presented in a very succinct manner. I sure appreciate that. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this? You know, I, I think, um, if people are looking for a magic pill to not have to pay federal income tax, this is not it. This is not what that's about. Um, this is about restoring a status which is commensurate with what I believe the founders intended. If you put on your conspiracy theory hat, you could say that the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment, and certainly it, it sure looks like the 
practical effect of that is that it turned the authority and the hierarchy of power upside down in this country. But for those who actually know how it works, there's a way to forego that. And James Madison said, and I'll throw out one more founding father's quote, knowledge shall forever govern ignorance. And for a nation of people who wish to govern themselves, they must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives. Yes. And oh, so I, like um, I think Nelson Rockefeller once said, not all of us are capable of living under our nation's constitution. And I think it was his grandfather that was instrumental to some degree in the structure of the federal income tax as well as the Federal Reserve Act. So take that uh, straight from the source. I think they, uh, those gentlemen know very well how it works. Uh, I think there is a class of people in this country, political or financial, that know very well how this works. And uh, I think it's high time that um, – John Q. Citizen also figures out how it works so he can start living in a way that the Constitution was intended to operate. Absolutely. Level the playing field with accurate knowledge. That's uh, I, There isn't a more powerful tool than having knowledge that your opponent uh, has over you. Being able to uh, e equalize that is just phenomenal. And this short two-hour presentation it really goes a long way towards leveling that playing field. Just knowing that that's available will gnaw at the, at the hearts and minds of people who realize there's something wrong. There's something going on that they would like to change. And this really absolutely illuminates the process of, of uh, what needs to be done. And that not only that, but that it can be done. That's right. An honest but mistaken man, once shown the truth, either ceases to be honest or ceases to be mistaken. So now once you hear the truth, it's not something you can unhear. It's not something that you can uh, unlearn. Um, I would encourage people, do not take this topic lightly. It's a very serious matter. Um, I believe that uh, there is a ton of self-education and study that has to take place. This should not be something that's done flippantly, but it's, you know, it is important. And for those, there's, you know, there's going to always be that small percentage that this resonates with who I think uh, once they hear it, they'll say, so that's how it works. I knew there was something to it. Um, and then there's, there's those who every once in a while, they trip over the truth they stand up, they dust themselves off, and then they proceed about their way as though nothing has happened. Right, right. Yeah, those those are the ones that uh, we refer to as being so absolutely inured to the system that they're dependent on it and will defend it uh, in a manner that just uh, boggles the mind. So, I think Morpheus said that, didn't he? Well, he did. Yes, he did. Um, well, JP, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for presenting this information, taking the time. Uh, I know you're very busy. I appreciate being able to be in touch with you. And it, it kills me because I know who you are and I know how much effort has gone into this research that you've done. Um, the time involved and to be able to put it out there 
for free for everybody to to know and and do it under uh an anonymous name i just can't thank you enough for your you know your dedication to liberty and freedom uh your service to the country the uh the gift that was just put out in this podcast is just immeasurable i'm so grateful for it and maybe someday we can actually say who you are and people can show their appreciation so thank you very much and we really would uh hope to have you back on the show again almost uh almost had to create an edit that point there for a second but um great thank you so much for for coming on and and we'll chat again soon thank you <laughs>